Spring is a great time of year to do some cleaning around the house and clean up your finances. And something else that you can do for your family this spring is shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius as part of your financial planning for the year. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses, things like mortgage payments, credit card payments, car loans, or even college costs. I have a wife and two kids, with a third on the way, by the way, and business partners that all depend on my income. So I needed life insurance and Policy Genius made that so incredibly easy. And with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. One of my favorite ways to invest is real estate, but not everyone wants to handle tenants and toilets. Enter Fundrise. They make it easy to invest in real estate with their flagship fund. Now, as always, you always have to carefully consider the investment objectives and risks of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. But right now, demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. And the Fundrise flagship fund plans on going on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with just as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash PFP. As always, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash PFP. That's fundrise.com slash PFP. This is a paid advertisement. On this episode of the Personal Finance Podcast, 15 personal finance rules that will keep you wealthy. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Personal finance podcast i'm your host andrew founder of mastermoney.co and today on the personal finance podcast we're going to be talking about 15 different money rules that can keep you wealthy if you guys have any questions make sure to hit us up on instagram tiktok or twitter at mastermoneyco and follow us on spotify apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you love to listen to this podcast on and if you want to help out the show leave a five-star rating and review on apple podcast spotify or your favorite podcast player cannot thank you guys enough for leaving those five-star ratings and reviews. They truly mean the world to me. And you can also watch this on YouTube at Andrew Gincola on the YouTube channel there. Uh, You can watch every single podcast episode so that you can see the visuals that we're talking about and some of those different pieces that we always, always like to dive deep into. So today I'm really excited about this episode because I'm going to give you the rules of thumb for personal finance for a lot of different situations. And we're going to be going through rules of thumbs for buying your car, for buying your house 
house for things like retirement savings, how much you can actually draw down every single month. In addition, we're also going to talk about a couple of real estate rules of thumbs. Those are going to be the last two that we talk about. So really, really excited for this episode. And we're going to be talking about some with your asset allocation as well. So I want to kind of give you some ideas. And some of these we have not talked about yet. And what we may do is we may create guides for each and every single one of these things so that you have these rules of thumb available. So when life happens or things come up and you say, hey, I need to go buy a new car, then you have those available to you. You have those complete guides for you there. So we'll be talking about those in the near future and putting those together. Really, really excited about this because having these available are gonna really, really help you keep your wealth. That's the entire goal of this episode is to have these rules of thumbs available so that you can preserve as much of your wealth as possible. And if you can follow these, these are gonna be something where you can become financially independent and you can also retire early and have your time freedom back, which is our entire goal with this podcast is make as many of you wealthy as we possibly can. We wanna make a million millionaires on this podcast and that's what we're really, really excited to do. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so rule of thumb number one is a simple rule of thumb that's going to help you figure out what your asset allocation should be if you have absolutely no idea. Now, before we jump into this and talk about what it is, I want you to understand for this one, it's just a rule of thumb because what you really wanna allocate is what is your actual risk tolerance? You gotta figure out what your risk tolerance is before you do anything with your asset allocation. And if you want us to create an episode talking about how to find your risk tolerance, we can absolutely do that. Shoot me an email or shoot me a message on social media and I will create that episode for you. But when we dive into our asset allocation, you wanna make sure that you figure out what your risk tolerance is because if you have a higher risk tolerance and you're willing to have more growth, then this may not pertain to you, but I want you to figure out, hey, how much asset allocation should I have in stocks? Asset allocation just means what is the mix of stocks and bonds inside of your portfolio? So which asset allocation should I have in stocks? Which asset allocation should I have in bonds? And if you want to add real estate and other things as well, you can do that. But this specifically is for a stock bond portfolio. So the way this works is you take the number 125 and you subtract your age. What's going to happen here is when you do this, it's going to tell you, hey, here's what your asset allocation needs to be. Now, if you're younger than the age of 25, then that tells you immediately your asset allocation should be right around 100% stocks because you have so much time for this money to grow with this rule of thumb. But as you age, maybe you add some bonds into your portfolio. Now, when it comes to this rule, I have a very, very high risk tolerance when it comes to asset allocation. So I do not follow this rule. I have more asset allocation into stocks than I do other things because I have a high risk tolerance and I know how the stock market works. I understand how it works over the long term. The stock market goes in one direction. It goes up historically in the future, maybe not, but historically it's gone in one direction for the last hundred years. So I know exactly long term which direction the stock market goes in. I know all these different statistics that we've talked about a number of times in this podcast. That is why I keep my asset allocation in the majority of stocks. But if you do not know your risk tolerance, this is a great rule of thumb to have. So say for example, you're 35 years old. Well, if you're 35 years old, you can look at this asset allocation, and if you subtract 25 from your age, you get the number 90. That's the percentage of stocks that you would have to have there. So if you had 90% stocks, that means you'd have 10% bonds available to you. That's the Warren Buffett portfolio, if you've ever heard us talk about that. And so this is something where it can give you a really quick guide, a starting point for your asset allocation. So if you're 50 years old, you have 75% stocks, and you have 25% bonds. 
If you're 60 years old, you have 65% stocks and 35% bonds. This is a great rule of thumb. And I like this rule of thumb. I skew my numbers a little more aggressively than other people because I do believe stocks in the long run have outperformed bonds. So that is why I like to have a larger asset allocation in stocks. Now, if your risk tolerance just is you hate having too much stocks, you don't like volatility, you don't like the market going up and down, more power to you to have more bonds. That levels out the playing field for most people. But if you do not mind taking some of the volatility, like we had volatility during COVID and right after COVID where we had recession and the market went up and then we had another recession and the market went up. And I say recession in quotations because it was quick, it was short founded, but technically we were in a recession. So what you're looking at here is something where you can figure out your asset allocation really, really quickly. Love this if you have no idea what you're doing and you need a starting point. So you take the number 125 minus your age, and that's a great starting point to try to figure out where you need to be. Number two is a way for you to figure out how much net worth you should have based on your age and how much you make. So I really love this one, and this is one where... I've actually put it together a couple of times for a few different people who are good with money, and this hits the nail on the head for a lot of them. So we've gone through this with a few people, and this just is perfect for them. Every single time, people who are good with money nail this every single time, and it's really close to what their net worth is. So this is a really cool number to figure out. So here's exactly how it works. And this was originally in the Millionaire Next Door. It's called the Millionaire Next Door Calculator is what I call it, but you can call it whatever you want. And the way it works is it's your age, times your income divided by 10 to estimate your expected net worth. So the first thing you're gonna do is you're gonna take your age and you're gonna multiply it by your realized or your taxable annual income, okay? So once you do that, you multiply your age by your taxable income, then you divide that number by 10, and then you subtract out any inherited wealth. Inherited wealth does not count in this situation because that's not money that you actually put together from earning towards your net worth, because I want you to figure out, hey, are you good with money or are you not good with money? Now, if you're just starting off, obviously you're not gonna hit this number, but if you've been good with money for the last 10 years, and we have a lot of listeners who have, then this is one where you can see, hey, am I on track or do I need to pick up the pace a little bit and figure out some of these things so that I can get my net worth a little higher? Now, for most people, if you're just starting off, this is an aggressive number that you're gonna need to hit, but you can hit that number in the future if you continue on the path that we talk about all the time on this podcast. So let's give an example here. So say, for example, you're a 61-year-old with an annual income of $235,000. So in this case, this person's net worth should be at least $1.433 million because you take 235000 times 61, then divide that by 10. Here's another example. Say you're 41 years old and you have an earned income of $143,000 plus $12,000 in investment income. So your net worth should be at least $635,500 because it's $155,000 times 41 divided by 10. So this is kind of gonna give you an idea of where you at least need to be so that you can be on track for financial independence. Is it perfect? No, but this is a great, great target marker for you to figure out what your net worth should be because we do average net worth by age on this podcast. We've done an episode on the average net worth by age on this podcast, but the difference between that and hitting this number is this is going to actually factor in what your income is and it's going to factor in what your age is and where you need to hit. So 
For people who have been in the personal finance game for a long time, you understand how money works. This is one that's going to give you a great factor on trying to at least hit that number, if not more. I mean, if you want to be someone who wants to be really, really wealthy, if you can get more than this, that's even better. So try to beat this number. Money's just a game sometimes. And if you can beat this number, that's an amazing way to factor in where you are in your wealth building journey. Number three is regarding life insurance. I get a lot of questions from people saying, hey, how much life insurance should I actually get? So my specific range is I'm okay with anywhere between eight to 10X, what your annual income is. Even 12X is fine. If you have a spouse who makes a lot more money than you, I'm even okay with you going a little lower than 8X if that is the situation. It is very situation specific. But 10 times your income for life insurance is a great rule of thumb. If you have no idea what to do and you're just trying to figure out what is a safe amount to have for term life insurance. And that's the great route to go. Now with life insurance, I want everybody to hear this. You do not need life insurance if you have nobody who depends on your income. If you're a single person out there, you're living in an apartment, there is nobody who depends on your income. You do not have a spouse. You do not have children. You do not have a business partner that depends on your income. Then you don't need life insurance. You do not need life insurance whatsoever. And or if you are someone who has children who depend on your income and or you have a spouse who depends on your income, maybe you're the breadwinner and your spouse depends on that income in order to pay the bills, then you need to have life insurance. And you don't even have to be the breadwinner. You could be the person who does not make as much money. And if you don't, but they still depend on your income to pay the bills, maybe you have you know a mortgage, you have all these different pieces available, then you still need to have life insurance. So figuring out how much you need, 10X is a great rule of thumb. Eight to 10X is usually what I say, but you can even go as high as 12. X if you are worried about that side of it. And then getting term life insurance is the way to go. Forget whole life, forget IULs, forget all those different things. Look at term life insurance for most people because what this does is it's the cheapest form of life insurance and it's for a specific amount of time. So say, for example, you're 30 years old and you're going to have term life insurance for the next 30 years. Then it terms, meaning life insurance is over at age 60. And at that point in time, you should have enough wealth built up where you don't need life insurance anymore. You have your money, your nest egg available to you so that you don't need that life insurance available anymore. That's why term life insurance is incredible and it's cheap because it terms at a certain point in time and we all anticipate that we are going to live during that time frame barring any catastrophic events or anything like that. So that's how term life insurance works. That's how it's really cheap. I use Policy Genius. Policy Genius is a sponsor of this podcast as well, but they also are the holder of my term life insurance. And so with Policy Genius, you can do this. You can check the link in our show notes if you want to. And Policy Genius is a great place to do this. I did it in like 30 minutes and it costs me like 30 bucks a month. So really, really cheap to have protection over your family and really, really important to have that. But 10X is a really simple number to know. Number four is 20% plus for your savings rate. So your savings rate is the catalyst to financial independence. If you've never heard us talk about this, your savings rate is incredibly, incredibly important in order to achieve financial independence. But most people say, well, how much do I need to have my savings rate? Now, one thing I want you to note before we dive into this is our friend of the podcast, Nick Majuli, he has had an article on this and he talked about this in his book, Just Keep Buying as well. And I agree with him that savings rates are seasonal, meaning there are gonna be times in life where your savings rate cannot be as high as you would like it to be. Maybe you had a job loss, for example, or you had a big life event that happened and you've had a baby or you had a couple of kids or maybe 
you just found out that you're going to have triplets, for example. Well, in that situation, you got to figure out life first before you figure out what your savings rate is. So savings rates are seasonal. But if you're looking for a number where you need to hit, the number that you really, really want to hit, I want you at 20% or more. You can look at all the personal finance gurus out there that have been talking about this for a long time. They'll say 10%. They'll say 15%. But the reality is, if you look at savings rates charts that we have talked about in the past, if you get an 8% rate of return and you only invest 15% of your money, you're going to be working for a very, very long time. So if financial independence is your goal, then you want to make sure that you can retire early. If you want to retire in your 50s or your 40s, then getting 20% plus is going to be imperative for you. Now, what do I mean by savings rate? What does that actually entail? And what does that encompass in total? What I mean by that is your savings rate, it can be money that you put into your emergency fund, but it's also the money that you invest. And most importantly, it's the money that you invest because that's your future dollars. But if you're building up your emergency fund, same thing, 20%, it can go all towards your emergency fund until you have that built up. Then you start investing your dollars and you can do that towards that as well. This is not your savings rate towards discretionary spending like a wedding fund or a vacation or something like that. This is for things that are gonna help you build wealth over time. Same thing for like saving up for a car. That does not help you build wealth over time. So making sure that you understand what's actually falls into that savings rate is gonna be very, very important. Now, can you add your 401k match to this? That's another big question that we always get. You can add your 401k match to your savings rate if you want to. When I was in the corporate world, I did not. Only I just counted it as icing on the cake because it's just a really cool thing to add on top. But if you want to, you could because technically it's part of a percentage of your savings rate. I have a friend who works for the government and his 401k match is like 9% of his salary. So that's an amazing thing to add on top as icing on top. If you have a 20% savings rate, plus you have another 9% that's being matched, that's an incredible savings rate at almost 30% for a lot of people. And you can retire in your late 40s or 50s with a savings rate like that. One of the hardest things about managing your money is figuring out where it's all going. And most of us are trying to save for several goals at once, which can feel like a daunting task to see if you're on track or even on pace to accomplishing your goals. But there is a tool that makes it so much easier and it's called Monarch Money. They help you track your money flow without taking a ton of time and energy. And Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. And you can invite them with an extra account with their own own login at no extra cost to collaborate with you. And Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can create custom budgets, set notifications, and you can set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications. And after trying Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash PFP. That's M-O-N- A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash P-F-P for your extended 30-day free trial. The key to winning in any business is making sure you have the right business partner. An example is Procter & Gamble or Ben & Jerry. But what about the perfect partners when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million dollars stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. 
And most people know one of your biggest struggles when it comes to starting an online business is finding new customers and Shopify can help you do that. And what I love about Shopify is no matter how big you wanna grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash PFP, all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash PFP now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash PFP. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. And if you need to hire, you need Indeed because Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. And they have a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. So ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash personal finance. Just go to indeed.com slash personal finance right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash personal finance. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now is a great time of year to get your finances in order. And no matter what your financial goals are this year, when you use Chime's online checking account, you can cross all those financial to-dos off your list. Chime's online checking account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-fee overdraft up to $200. Plus, get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go 24-7. And you get access to over 60,000 ATMs. So start building your credit and open a Chime checking account with at least $200 qualifying direct deposit to get started. Get started at Chime.com PFP. That's Chime.com PFP. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank, N.A., or Stride Bank, N.A., members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Early access to direct deposit funds depends on payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. All right, the next one is one that I have not talked about a ton yet, but it's our new car buying rules. And because of the shift in the way that cars are being purchased now and the pricing of cars, we have shifted some of our rules when it comes to car buying. Now, most of it's exactly the same. Actually, the math comes out to exactly the same, which is interesting, but the rules have changed just slightly. So we're going to call this 24-7 car buying rules, okay? So the way that this is going to work is that you have to put 20% down on a car. Why do you have to put 20% down on a car? Why does that seem like a waste of time even if there's a 0% interest rate? Why do you have to put 20% down on a car? If you heard our episode where we talked about the biggest car buying mistakes, this is one of them because I do not want you underwater on a car from the day that you buy because once you drive a car off the lot, it depreciates immediately and a lot of people who do not put any money down have a underwater car and if you get in an accident with that car, you have to pay the difference on that accident. So say for example, you buy a $30,000 car, you drive it off the lot, that car is now worth $23,000, you get in an accident immediately a couple days later or a month later and then all of a sudden, guess what happens? Your insurance is only gonna pay back the value, which is $24,000 and you owe $7,000 because you did not put any money down. Now, 
Can your car trade in count as that 20% down? Absolutely it can. And that is money that you can utilize. If you're trading in a car, you can add that as part of your 20% and then put the rest down. I'm okay with you putting the minimum amount down, but I don't want you underwater. Cars depreciate very, very quickly. And if you have a luxury vehicle, these rules don't apply. Luxury vehicles, I want you paying that off even quicker than this when it comes to this. So 20% down, what's the four stand for? Remember, it's 24-7. Four is four-year loan terms. We've talked about three-year loan terms in the past. I'm stretching this out a little bit more for people because I want to make sure that you can actually afford the payments. So four years or less, why is this important? This is important because I don't want you having a depreciating asset where you're making payments on a depreciating asset for a long period of time. So that is the four-year loan terms is where you're gonna reduce that down. The seven is 7% or less of your gross income is what your payments should be every single year. So if you make $100,000 per year, $7,000 or less is what your car payment should be. And if you can get it even less than that, that'd be even better. So what this comes out to is you've heard us talk about this in the past, where the max I want you paying for a car is 35%. And this is if you want to work to your 60, is the max I want you to pay is 35% of your gross income for one year's income on a car. And I want you to drive that car as long as possible. But if you wanna be financially independent, you need to reduce that down to below 30% of your gross income. So that's exactly what this does. This is 7% or less of your gross income on that payment. Seven times four is 28%, which reduces you down to that 30% or less. So this rule is perfect if you wanna retire early at any point in time. Early meaning anytime before 60. So if you wanna be retired in your 50s, then do it that way. Now. The lower you keep this number, meaning the amount of money that you pay for that vehicle, all in cost, the lower that you keep that number percentage-wise, if you can get it below 20%, that's what you should be when it comes to fire, 20, 15%. In fact, there's an article from Financial Samurai where he says people who want to be financially independent, they want to retire in 10 years or less, need to keep it below 10% of their gross income in order to retire in that time frame. meaning the purchase price needs to be less than 10% of your gross income. So you really need to make some sacrifices buying used cars, things like that, if you want to be retired with fire in 10 years or less, because you cannot be wasting money on depreciating assets like this. You know how I feel about cars and depreciating assets. Now, I have a luxury vehicle. It is one of the biggest pains in my butt. It is one of the most expensive things to maintain. It's not my car. It's my wife's car. And it is one of the things that really just drives me up a wall on how much it costs to maintain these things. So luxury vehicles have completely different rules. If you have a luxury vehicle, you need to be paying that thing off in two years or less. But when it comes to regular cars that don't depreciate as fast, 24-7 is the rule. Now let's talk about home buying. And this is not for first-time home buyers. We have a money Q&A coming up where we're going to be talking about first-time home buyers. But the rule is the 2033 rule. So when it comes to home buying, you want to have 20% down, 30% or less of your income is being spent on the monthly payment or the mortgage or the rent or whatever else you're doing. And then no more than 3x your income on the purchase price. Now, the third one has a little flexibility. We'll talk about that here in a second. So that's what it stands for, 2033. This is not for first-time home buyers. Now, before we dive in, first-time home buyers, it's really difficult to save up a 20% down payment if you don't have another asset that you're selling in order to move it into that down payment. It's really difficult. I understand how hard it is. We've talked about in the past where you need to have 20% down to avoid PMI. I get it. But at the same time, you got to have some flexibility. And the time we're in now at the pricing where housing is, 
And the amount of income that most people are make in comparison to the housing prices, it's really, really difficult to save that 20% down payment. It just is. It's a lot of money to have available to you because if you're trying to buy a half million dollar house, which is where a lot of people have to buy in certain areas, then you have to save $100,000 just to buy that half million dollar house. So I am okay as long as those monthly payments are going to be less than 30% of your income. I am okay with you reducing that down payment down to less than that. So that's the caveat for first-time homebuyers. If you're not a first-time homebuyer, you have another asset or a house where you can roll the equity from that house into the next house and you need to have 20% down. So this is why it's really important also to buy your first house right because you gotta have that equity available so that you can roll it into the next house if you want to upgrade at some point in time. So with this rule, let's say you make $120,000 a year and you have $100,000 in cash or equity from your other house saved and you're 32 years old. But let's say you want an $850,000 home, which is seven times your annual income. Now, why do we want you to control the amount of money that you're spending on your house at the purchase price? Because housing, for most people don't understand this, houses, your personal residence, are not very good assets at all. In fact, I would consider them very poor assets. You could probably make more money in a high-yield savings account than you can in your house right now. A lot of people argue with me, but you gotta run the numbers for the total cost of ownership, TCO. And once you run those numbers, you're gonna realize very quickly that over time, historically, on the national average, the average house has returned about 4% to investors. Even for your folks who bought a house in 1945 for $25, it's the same exact rate of return over that time frame. So you gotta look at this, run the numbers for total cost of ownership, so you understand exactly how this works. We've talked about how to do that in other episodes if you want to check that out. But in that scenario, if someone made $120,000 and they want to buy an $850,000 home and they only have $100,000 in cash saved, this means they can't put 20% down, so they only put 10% down, which leaves you with only $15,000 in cash buffer and a $765,000 mortgage. That's a dangerous situation to be in. If you're making $120,000 a year and you have a $765,000 mortgage, that puts your financial life in jeopardy. So you don't wanna be doing that because here's what's happening. Even if you get a really low interest rate at 3.75%, which is impossible at the time recording this, but if you got an interest rate at 3.75%, your monthly payment would still be $3,543, which is 35.4% of your gross income. So you violated all the rules by buying a house with a too high of a purchase price. So if you can keep that closer to three times your income, what's more important is if it fits into 30% or less of your income, but if you can keep it to three times, that's really, really good. In a lot of areas, you can't. I understand that. It's really expensive in some areas. So if you can't do that when it's really, really expensive, you can bump this up to four, maybe even five, but you still have to keep those payments less than 30%. Or if it's your second house, then you have to save up more money for the down payment to reduce down those payments. That is the other side of that. Really, really important to understand, but that is how we're looking at it, the 2033 rule. And this is for second time home buyers. All right, number seven is having six months of expenses saved up in your emergency fund. Now, for most people, I would want you to have six months of expenses. You're saying, well, what about three months? What about one month? If you can get a job really quickly, we've talked about this in the past, maybe you can get away with three months, but for most people, it is much better to have six months of expenses saved up in your emergency fund. Now, if you're trying to get started investing and you really wanna start investing your dollars, getting to that three-month point in time and then starting investing, I'm fine with that. Then you can save the rest by splitting it up because you wanna invest your dollars over that time frame. You wanna take advantage of time. So getting to three months, racing up to get to three months, then inv starting to invest until you can get to that six-month point, then you're done with the emergency fund once you have six months funded until you need it, which life's gonna happen, you're gonna need it. 
But six months of emergency funds is what I want every single person to target, especially as you approach retirement age. You can have even more there. But you've heard us talk about this in the past where I like to have more cash on hand. Cash is safety. Cash is something that you definitely want to have on hand to protect your wealth. It's one of the biggest things that can help you protect your wealth. Number eight is the 50-30-20 rule when it comes to the rule for budgeting. Now, for the 50-30-20 rule, I am not super, super enthusiastic about these percentages because a lot of times I think this does not help you save and invest enough. Because if you look at the original rules of the 50-30-20 rule, 50% goes to housing, food, and transportation. Fine. 30% towards your discretionary spending. If that's the stuff that brings you value, that's the extra stuff that you do, going out to eat, going to the movies, going gym memberships, all that other stuff. And then 20% towards savings and investing. Now, there's nothing wrong with this if you're actually putting 20% towards savings and investing. But if you're saving up for your other stuff, like a down payment for a car or your wedding fund or your vacation fund, and that's part of your saving and investing, then your savings rate is too low. So for those types of things, the difference and the caveat that I would make is I would put those into discretionary spending. So car down payment savings, wedding fund savings, stuff that you're going to spend, stuff that you're actually planning on spending the money within the next 10 years. And then the 20% savings and investing, what I like to do is have that at least available so that you can take care of the things that matter, like your emergency fund and investing. Those are really the only two areas that you go towards and put that together. Now, it has pros and cons to the 50-30-20 rule. It's simplistic. It gives you flexibility when it comes to your housing, food, and transportation because, say, for example, you want to buy a really fancy house and you could care less about cars. In fact, you'd rather ride your bike around town. This gives you the 50% goes to housing, food, transportation, so you can have all of those mixed and commingled in and you can make those adjustments as you go. And then there's a balanced approach to it as long as the savings and investing is high enough. But the problem with it I have is for people who have debt because where does the debt repayment come in? It's gonna come into your 20% savings and investing. Well, in that point in time, your discretionary spending should probably be reduced if you have debt. So it's not a one-size-fit-all approach. If you have debt, I would reduce that discretionary spending down drastically and increase the saving and investing portion so that you can start to pay down debt, specifically high-interest debt. So that is the one caveat that I have with it and the issue I have with it. It's a very popular budgeting tool and it's a great starter point, but if you have debt, you got to look for other ways to do this. Number nine is no greater than 0.3% expense ratios for mutual funds and index funds. Now, this is one where it's very, very important to do this. Now, where does that 0.3% come into play? This comes into play because if you want to get a robo-advisors, even robo-advisors cost this amount or less. Most of them are 0.25% now, but that's the expense ratio that I think that you should have when it comes to investing or less. Now, in my consideration, honestly, 0.3%, there's a lot of funds that are way, way less than that. Fidelity has zero fee index funds. And fees will kill your wealth. So you got to keep your fees incredibly low. In fact, we've had a ton of episodes talking about this. A lot of people have fired their AUM financial advisors, meaning the advisors that take 2% fees because of our episodes. And I'm all for financial advisors that they're putting back together a financial plan for you. But if they're just doing this to take your assets under management, I'm not for that at all. So fees will absolutely kill your wealth. And if you look at this, it actually reduces the amount of money that your money can make if you do not take care of this. So a 0.50% fee, just a little higher than our max, over the course of time can reduce your portfolio by 13.9% over the course of 30 years. And over the course of 40 years, 18.1%. A 1% fee will reduce your portfolio 25.8%. A 2% fee will reduce your portfolio 44.8% by the time you retire. And a 3% fee, 58.8%. If you have a 3% fee, oh 
boy, it's time to start having some words with whoever that is, because that is a major problem that you're going to have. I just read a story that my friend sent me of NFL players who hired a bunch of financial advisors, this wealth company, who are charging them an 8% fee. Absolutely insane. But this is something where you could see just at a 3% fee over 40 years, 69.3% of your portfolio is eaten away to fees. These don't sound like a lot of money. They are taking away your wealth building potential. Even the difference between 0.10 and 0.25 is still high. 0.25%, a robo-advisor is gonna take 9.5% of your portfolio away over the course of 30 years. Keep your fees low, and if you really, really hate fees, you can look at something like Fidelity or Vanguard. They have the lowest fees in the game. Fidelity has zero fee index funds, but you gotta look at the total return. You gotta look at those fees in comparison to what the actual return is going to be. And so you want to be tracking that with track record, history, stuff like that. Number 10 is the 4% rule withdrawal for retirement. So the 4% rule we've talked about in this podcast a million times. We'll talk about it a million times more because there's a lot of people who still need to learn this concept. But this is how you can figure out, hey, how much money do I need in retirement? So say, for example, you have a million dollars. Every million dollars that you have in retirement, you can withdraw $40,000. That's 4% of a million dollars. And that's exactly how it works. And so this is how much money you can withdraw based on the amount of money that you have invested. And then each year after that, you adjust it for inflation on a go forward basis. So here's an example of this. Let's say, for example, if you retired with $1 million in assets and inflation was a constant 5% every single year, just so I can make this math super easy. So you would spend $40,000 in year one or 4% times $1 million. And then in year two, because inflation is at 5%, you'd spend $40,000 in year two. Then in year three, you'd spend $44,100 and so forth and so on. So you'd be adjusting that for inflation as time goes on. So that's how the 4% rule works. And there is some literature coming out that the 4% rule is too conservative. We are diving deep into some of that stuff and running some models on that. So we will give you some updates on that. Some people say you can even withdraw 5% and as high as 5.5% is some models that I've seen come out. Really, really interesting stuff. So we are gonna be diving into that as well because that means you can retire a lot faster if that's the case. Number 11 is 25 times your annual income as a benchmark for financial independence. So this is a really cool rule of thumb. It's a really good way, a quick way to figure out how much money you need to retire. So say, for example, you wanna spend $80,000 per year in retirement. Well, if you wanna spend $80,000 per year in retirement, you do the 25X rule, meaning you multiply $80,000 by 25, and that is the amount of money that you're going to need to be able to retire. So 80,000 times 25 is $2 million, what you would need to be able to retire. So if you wanted to spend $120,000, you would need $3 million because you multiply 120 by 25, and then you would need $3 million available to you. So this is just a really cool way, really fast way to be able to figure out what that number should be. And then you can kind of go from there and use it as your rule of thumb. It works together in tandem with the 4% rule. It's just two quick ways to figure out how much money you need. Number 12 is the rule of 72. Now the rule of 72 is going to estimate how long it's going to take for your money to double based on whatever your rate of return or your interest rate is on a specific investment. So it's really, really simple to figure this out. So the rule of 72, the way that it works is that you divide 72 by your annual interest rate and that will give you approximation of the number of years it will take for your initial investment to double. So let me give you an example of this. Say, for example, you're looking at your high-yield savings account, and right now your high-yield savings account is returning close to 5%, but we can be conservative with it. Let's say it's getting a 4% rate of return right now. So with your high-yield savings account at a 4% rate of return, if you divide 72 by four, you're gonna get the number 18. So it would take you 18 years 
for that money to double. Let's say you're getting a 6% rate of return. You divide 72 by six and you're gonna get 12. That's gonna take you 12 years at a 6% rate of return for your money to double. At seven, 10.3 years, 8%, nine years, 9%, eight years, and 10 years, 7.2 years for your money to double. Why does this matter so much? Because a lot of people early on in their investing career, they're saying, my money hasn't even doubled yet. I've been investing for six years. My money hasn't doubled yet. And you're getting a 10% rate of return. Well, at 7.2 years is when your money is going to double. But this starts to compound over time. And so you can see that as you get this rate of return, your money is going to start to compound. And the more money that you have invested, the faster this machine starts moving. So don't get discouraged. Use the rule of 72 as a rule of thumb because it is very, very close to what will happen based on your rate of return. Number 13 is the 1% rule for investment properties. So this is one when it comes to real estate investing, where you definitely want to make sure that this is a really, really quick way to do the math to see if something cash flows. Most people still don't do this that are new to real estate investing that I see. And so this is a really, really cool way for you to be able to see, hey, will a property even have a chance to cash flow? There's a lot more you need to do after this, but this is going to give you the quick rule of thumb if somebody's talking about a property and saying, hey, you want to buy this property? Here's the numbers. Here's how it works. So say, for example, you are looking at a property and it is a $300,000 property. Well, $300,000 property, it needs to at least rent for 1% every single month for that property to be able to cash flow. So at 1%, $300,000 means that that property at least needs to be able to rent for $3,000 every single month month. If you have a half a million dollar house that you're looking at, it needs to at least rent for $5,000 every single month. This is why in a lot of situations, looking at properties that may have a lower price point is what a lot of investors do because it's a little easier to get that rent to price ratio when it comes to being able to rent out those properties. Not everywhere, but it depends on your specific area. But this is why some investors look at those lower price points because you can find you know, $200,000 house that rents out for $2,000 or $150,000 house that may rent for $1,500. Now, this gets harder and harder to hit as time goes on. There's a number of factors in play. So you gotta run the entire numbers when you do this, but this is a great first-time indicator that's gonna show you if a property will cash flow. The next one is the 50% rule for rental property expenses. So if you're trying to figure out what your expenses are going to be on a rental property, really 50% of rents, this is without the mortgage, but 50% of rents is going to be a really rough estimate that you can kind of figure out what your expenses should be. Now, is this absolutely perfect? No, but it's going to give you a really rough estimate. And then maybe your mortgage is 30% and your cash flow could be 20%. Something like that would be a, a great scenario, but that would be one where you can really run this really quickly. Some people have said in certain areas or certain type of properties, it's closer to 60%, not 50%. And some people have said, well, it's actually way less for me. So it depends on the type of property, the class of property, meaning is it a class house, B class, C class, D class, and what type of tenants you have is another big factor. So if you have tenants who are going to be wrecking that property over and over and over again, you have a C minus class, it's not section eight, these tenants are going to be wrecking that property, then you're going to have really, really high expenses where if you're in a single family house and it's a family in that house and they have pride of ownership, meaning they're, they're renting that house, but they're treating that house like their own, then you may have way less expenses than you would in other scenarios. So that's another quick rule of thumb when it comes to real estate investing. And the last one for real estate investing, this is number 15, is you want to have a rate of return that is greater than 8%. So your cap rate needs to be higher than an eight. The reason for this is because if you do not get more than an 8% rate of return, you can go invest that money and do absolutely zero work into something like an index fund for an 8% rate of return. So historically, index funds have returned that. Now, is that guaranteed? Absolutely not. But I'd rather do no work 
and get the same exact return as somebody who did a ton of work than to go out, find a property, do a ton of hours spending time finding a property, finding tenants for that property every time it goes vacant, repairing that property all the time, and all this for an 8% rate of return, which I could have just gotten when it comes to investing in index funds. Now, there's other factors in play. Maybe you want some tax reduction. Maybe you want some other things. But if this is your primary way to invest, that's kind of how I weigh it out. So those three things, 1% rule, 50% for expenses, 8% rate of return or cap rate is going to be something that I'm really, really interested in. If it's above an eight cap rate, then I'll definitely be looking into it. If it's below, unless I think it's an area that's up and coming, that's going to appreciate a lot, then I really don't want to look at the property or consider buying it. So those are just some other factors that I want you all to consider. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the 15 personal finance rules that will keep you wealthy. If you guys have any questions on these or you want me to create those guides, please let me know and we will do that so that we can all be on the same page when it comes to these rules of thumb and we can adjust some of these. Now, if you have some critiques for these, I would love to hear those as well. Make sure you reach out to me. I have no issue with you critiquing some of our numbers. But for me, this is stuff that works for me. This is time tested on me, which is where a lot of this comes from. And the way that I was working to build wealth was with some of these rules and making sure that I reduce my expenses to fit these rules. So this is something where I absolutely love to help as many of you as possible figure out how you can actually do this really, really quickly, how you can actually build wealth really, really quickly. Rules of thumbs like this are going to be really, really important for you to be able to do that. Listen, I value each and every single one of you. I cannot thank you guys enough. I truly, truly appreciate you listening to this podcast episode. If you know somebody who would get value out of this stuff, send it to a friend and don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review if you can on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else. Thank you guys again for listening to this podcast episode and we will see you on the next episode. Everyone's heard the saying, you have to spend money to make money. But everything in life, from travel to starting a business, is expensive. Which is why I want to tell you about a new podcast I love that will teach you all the tactics, tricks, and tips you need to upgrade your life, money, and even travel, all while spending less and saving more. It's called All the Hacks, and it's a top-ranked show hosted by my good friend Chris Hutchins a financial optimizer, an entrepreneur who's racked up millions of points, and he sold two companies. And if you want to rethink the way you're spending money, you have to check out the episode 91 with Bill Perkins and why you should be optimizing for net fulfillment and not net worth and striving to die with zero. All the Hacks has something for everyone, and I'm sure you'll find a new tactic that you can apply to your own life, whether it's a money hack that increases your net worth or a routine change that boosts your productivity. So check out All the Hacks. That's All the Hacks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your wallet will thank you later.